0: We have every intention that tomorrow morning or next week we're going to go and do that. So you better get your thumb out um, at your rear end and start and and engage with it. My name is Johnny Ball and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit
1: that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice, and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest.
0: The Office of Veterans Affairs was set up under the leadership of our nation's most senior wounded veteran, former Colonel David Richmond, CBE. David is a passionate veterans voice at the heart of government, now the independent veterans advisor, having moved on from the OVA. He articulates brilliantly the potential of our veterans community in all walks of life, and we are lucky to have such a champion at the centre of it all providing advice to politicians and decision makers. It's time for you to meet our guest.
1: I welcome David Richmond, CBE, the government's independent advisor on veterans, the first head of the Office of Veterans Affairs, a former lead role at Help for Heroes and our country's most senior wounded veteran from the Afghanistan conflict. Now, it's quite an introduction there, David. How are you? Very well. I'm not sure I I can match up to the intro, to be honest. (laughs) Well, I I know we've known each other for a a couple of years or so now and worked on a couple of projects, including, of course, uh, veterans work where you were so generous with your time, expertise and contributions. But but I've never really Mm. talked to you about your military career, if I'm perfectly honest, because we obviously focus so much on veterans. But could you just start off by telling us a little bit about your motivations for joining the British Army in the first place and your journey to commanding your battalion?
0: Yeah, I I was of course, yeah, I I was one of these little boys who just always wanted to be a soldier. That's all I all I ever really remember wanting to be. Uh and um I don't have any particular military background. Yeah, my dad wasn't didn't serve. He was just too young to be in national service, although his two older brothers did their national service, but both my grandfathers served in the second world war and, and um, that sort of wider family. Um, but I don't have a military background in any formal sense, but I always, always wanted to be a soldier. Uh, and um, I don't, I don't really, when I look back, I don't remember at any point ever really wanting to do anything else. Uh, and I remember at my regular commissions board have been asked that sort of obvious question well, why do you want to be an officer in the army? And that's pretty much the answer I gave them. You know, I always had. Um, and uh, and I went to Sandhurst. Um, I didn't go to university, so I'd, I went after the... You know, I left school in the sort of July and then went to Sandhurst in the January. And I loved it. It was brilliant. I, I would... I'd look at my sort of military career um, and all the sort of ups and downs and the, the, the sort of bump and grind of it, and I would do it all over again uh, in a flash. I really, really enjoyed it. I'd loved the people, um, you know... The, the, of course, the military has people you'd rather not spend too much time with, there's, but there aren't too many of them. But there's those people in, in, in every walk of life. But as a, as, as a great, I just loved it. Um, I liked the lifestyle. I enjoyed the people I was with. I just loved the time I spent with soldiers and, the, and what a, sort of, a whole grounding experience that always was. Uh, and um, I always felt we were in an organization with a purpose, which for me was always really important. Uh, and um and that whole sort of culture and ethos of of um getting stuff done um being being prepared to to um to go to odd parts of the world and and face down adversity in in so many ways was something i really enjoyed and as i say i would do it all over again i was largely a regimental duty um soldier you know i didn't um i didn't serve at a training depot i I sort of was a platoon commander for a long time i was your i'd say i was your your archetypal nightmare 19 year old platoon commander um who got a slap on the head fairly often from from platoon sergeant and um the sort of rolling of eyes from company commanders and and adjutants Um, but i was given i think enough time to sort of to to go through that phase Um, yeah and and then was lucky enough over the course of your commander platoon and and then I serve mortar platoon. Um, I was an adjutant and a company commander and then a CO to serve on operations in each of those appointments in be it Northern Ireland or um, Bosnia or Afghanistan or Granby or Iraq later on. Um, and, um, and of course I think when, when we joined up, I think my generation and I think generations even now you join up to go and do stuff, don't you? Well, we, we hit the jackpot in that sense with our generation because there was lots of stuff to go and do. Uh, and as I say, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, you mentioned
1: your command there. That must have been the the dream, the dream job to have commanding a battalion on operations with the quality of people that you had under, under your command at that time as well. But, and very publicly, you were wounded. And that is something that you i heard you speaking about somewhere else on on another podcast that it wasn't necessarily something that you really prepare for and i know from my own injury in civilian life i didn't really prepare for getting injured but have you seen how your own views towards veterans issues change over the years from being wounded and so entrenched on the pioneering work around recovery during your time at help for heroes to your work now in a real strategic level around the veterans narrative and, and what responsibility do you think you have around that narrative, around veterans' issues? Would you say?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you know, going back to the start of your question, you know, being, being commanding officer, I think is is the best job in the army. Um, but and I imagine it's the same if you're in the RAF or the Navy as well, and your equivalents. It is by some way the best job, and, and I've heard people who've got to three and four star general level saying the same. You know, you've got to, you've, it's it's an utter utter privilege to do it. Uh, and I think anybody who says, oh, I didn't really enjoy being a CEO, well, you should never have been doing it in the first place. Give it to somebody else who will. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful uh, as an experience and an enormous privilege. Uh, you're right. You know, I didn't I don't think any of us really plan on being wounded. You probably plan rather less on it when you're the CEO. Um, but, but it happened uh, and it comes with the turf uh, and um, you need to you need to deal with it when it when it does happen. And you need an organisation that can deal with it when it happens too. And that was one of the things, as I sort of reflect back on that event, you know, stand fast, what actually, what the injury was, but but it was really, um, uh, it was really, gratifying doesn't sound like the right word, but uh, satisfying is probably the better word, to see how well, the battery commander stepped up. Everybody, else, you know, all the people had to step up because the CEO had been taken out. Everybody stepped up, and stuff carried on as normal. And I think that that I, I took a huge amount of satisfaction from because, in my mind, although I was deeply hacked off at being wounded, um, something had worked. We'd done something right in training to get to a point where that happened so so seemingly seamlessly. Um, and then, as you say, you know, spending time uh, in in hospital and and uh, uh, rehab and recovery with with um all ranks who who have suffered many cranky much worse wounds than i did um is a really it's a, again a leveling experience um you know you you share the, the the you share the risks together but also you share the treatment and the recovery and the and the um the sort of roller coaster ride that 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 comes with that you share it with these guys and you share and of course your family share it with you and i think that whole experience um as you sort of hinted at did change my views of um of the needs to the need to support the veteran community um because you know you, you the, it's the things that you are asked to go and do on combat operations are almost impossible to convey the, the, the pressure the threat the the environment you're in uh, the the demands that are placed on people the things you're asking them to do are almost impossible to describe in any meaningful way to people who haven't experienced it themselves and I think that's quite right that's why you know, civilized nations have armed forces that go and do this for them um, but the the quid pro quo for that has got to be that that when people come back whether they're broken or not broken by it um, uh, in some way um, they, the nation has a duty um, exercised through the, its government to ensure they're properly supported and looked after afterwards. Now, you know, there's a, there will be times when people say, yeah, well, actually, not everybody goes away and does that kind of thing. No, not everybody does, but everybody's signed up to. Everybody plays their part, um, and and um, and everybody makes those commitments and those sacrifices along the way, uh, and, you know, the, the weeks and months away from families. The worry that the families go through when you're away and they know that on a sort of weekly basis, somebody on the patch is getting a knock at the door, that, that, sort, of, that sort of knock at the door that everybody dreads. Somebody's, somebody's getting it every, every week. Now, that, the, what I saw in the brief periods I was at home between so Headley Court and hospital admissions, in my own unit, was just how you, you, the, the tension in the air was almost palpable. Now, of course, previously I'd been one of those who'd always been away. You don't see the tension that's back at home and therefore you know we've got to get beyond and i think the army navy and air force are getting beyond but there's a way to go yet we've got to get beyond um treating families and uh, as that dreadful word dependence the 21st century version of camp followers they're not dependents these are people who are have a crucial role in mobilizing and sustaining your fighting force because they are the home base they are the people who pick up the pieces when it all starts to go wrong. And, um, and therefore, you know, I think commanding officers of today and company commanders and, and actually the chain of commanders, it disappears off into the ether, um, it ha- have, got a much, have got to engage much more closely with, with that body of people, those, those families who provide that essential support. And then, of course, having come through this, this sort of system of medical discharge into, into um, this recovery world, uh, yeah, of course, my views my views change. If you'd asked me, I think, if, a perfectly honest question to me, a perfectly honest answer to the question to me as a CEO, if I would said, you know, to what extent do you really think about veterans' affairs, I'd have said, well, not very much at all. I don't, you know, my my focus is that way. I'm, I'm focusing on whatever the next the next event is, and and actually, veterans are important, and I know they're important, but they're sort of over here, and that's for somebody else to to worry about. And I think that probably would have been my answer, and I suspect it's the answer of lots of CEOs, even now. But, of course, as you come through the other side and you see, as I do now, 14,500 people leaving every year with a huge body of experience and skills and training and understanding, with so much to contribute to business and society, Um, and of that 14,500, a small number who actually need ongoing support, let's make sure that as a society we absolutely make leverage to the full the potential that flows out of the armed forces and we provide the best possible support to every fa- uh, veteran and their family who needs it and that, i think that's that yeah that's where my sort of views have become more informed and perhaps more developed yeah
1: and i think you know that i'm obsessed by how we communicate that to people from the conversations that we've had and i think one area where it's really been done fantastically well is a, a sport that we well we both share a love of rugby they understand your bath supporter mm. so we won't go down that rabbit hole yeah
0: but labor, i love this year i I'm sure you <laughs> I'm
1: Northampton Saints supporter. So um yeah, we share ups and downs of rugby. But but sport has been such a huge vehicle for change of perceptions. My own nephew has a disability in a lower limb. And just to see the inspiration from things such as the Paralympics during that that time that kind of matched the time of peak operational experience of our armed forces, I guess, in 2012. But then also the stuff that's been done around the Invictus Games and how it's changed perceptions, how we have these very visual leaders and inspiring figures in our, in our public vision. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how, that, how well it's been done in sport. But do you think that having high profile veterans in other areas of public life? or dare I say it, you've even got people like James Blunt in music um, as very visual veterans in public life. I mean, how else do you think we can change the narrative, as sport has done, in public life by having high-profile veterans like yourself, would you say?
0: I I think there's always a role, uh, and and arguably now an expanded role, that that veterans in high-profile places, in whatever sector, can play and and of course not everybody who served wants the world to know they served not because they're ashamed of it because they they want to keep it private um, or they, it's not something they particularly want to shout about and I understand that too but I think that um, you know, those people who find themselves in positions of influence or authority um, or certainly senior in public places um, can have a role in in developing in, in continuing to develop and evangelize that narrative around what the veteran community have to offer, those service leavers and what they have to offer. Uh, and, um, and I think it's important that, that where, they, where they feel they, they want to, that they're given a platform to do that. And I'd encourage them to. Um, because if I was an employer, given that we seem to be sitting in, a, in an environment just now where there are more jobs than there are workers, it would seem. Well, if you're not looking really closely at the 14,500 people flowing out every year, who have got, um, who are trained, who have um, who, who have got experience, who are by definition adaptable and flexible and disciplined, um, and all those good words, yeah, all those things that we could list, as well as being plumbers and electricians and drivers and logisticians and you know satellite communications experts and strategic planners and you know on and on and on. We could go on forever, couldn't we? There's a big long list of stuff. Um, then I think you're missing a trick. You're missing a really big trick. Uh, and I think that the whole training system that people go through in the military, which is, which by and large, with it, there are some exceptions, but there's not that many in the big seam of it, you are trained for every job you go and do, give or take one or two. That training system and the extent to which you are properly trained to do the, to do the roles you're in should be the envy of any commercial organization. Well, get in there grab hold of it and exploit it, you know, leverage that and bring these great people in who can, who really can um, add value to your organisation. Now, whether it's a public sector organisation or whether it's a commercial organisation, makes not a jot of difference. Everybody has a role to play. And, and I think there's so much more that can be done around that. And I do think, so going back to your original point, you know, those people in prominent positions, should we start talking about it more uh, and more passionately? Yes.
1: And one thing you do talk about really passionately with great authenticity as well as resilience. And I think that's it. Our military training, as you've just spoken about, gives us a firm bedrock for resilience. You know, you haven't have got to have gone away and done amazing things in operations. Um, though Of course, plenty of people have. But I think that bedrock of military training and the values and standards really help shape that resilience. And time to time, something goes wrong. And that knock on the door happens Mm -hmm. to our poor families and that gets tested through trauma and you come out the other side. And I think you've actually, I think you didn't call it resilience. I think you called it stubbornness or something in terms of the military (laughs) context of being just being really stubborn. But sometimes this happens more by accident, literally than design. How do you think we can tap into that general universal form of stubbornness in order to make our community and our country far
0: greater than it can is at the moment. I, th- I think yeah, I think so much of the sort of stubbornness, the resilience that, that, um, that you talk about does come from your sort of military training. You, people have these sort of, um, in the military, you come from an environment where you have trusted relationships with people and trust is really important in our military environment. You have high expectations of each other. Um you um people are involved. Um there's an environment which sort of you know I could yeah there's the the whole environment is one around we are gonna have to take ourselves to do our job in areas which are going to be volatile, um complex, ambiguous and uncertain. I've forgot that back for VUCA. Volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. There you go. That that's the military's natural habitat. Well funny old thing, that military's natural habitat is starting to happen to the world in general anyway. And we're living through one of the most um, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous periods right now. Is this blessed COVID virus is resisting efforts to get it to go away? You have a body of people in the military that is their natural habitat. That is exactly where they're trained, the environment they're trained to be in. And I think that um, those those relationships you have, your training, your understanding, and your flexibility and adaptability to things, and and I think your flexibility of thought. Is and the resilience in in how you think and plan are all components which um, can make a fundamental difference to how society uh, responds to to future events that come and and press down on them. And there's going to be plenty more in the future. We just don't know what they are. So I absolutely am an evangelist for what former military people can offer in that environment and I think that environment is increasingly going to be the environment that we as a nation and and the world lives in because quite apart from uh, the power of technology making information move faster and all being permanently connected and all the uncertainties and complexities that come with that we're also far more connected physically than ever before and as COVID has just shown, um, shown us rather, rather starkly um, things move around the world with an alarming pace I mean, if you just think, you know, we're just going through, um, the alarm bells are ringing loudly now with Omicron, but it was only about 10 days ago we first heard of it. And now the first person in the UK has died of it. Um, And tens of thousands of people are suffering it. Well, let's just take that as an example and, and drop that into lots of other parts of what we do as a society. And that is exactly where I think the military and former military people can have a part to play.
1: And I think that physical connection that you speak about has been a challenge for the armed forces community for various reasons. Homeland security threats, for example, seeing people in uniform in our communities, um, perhaps some reticence about people talking and about themselves as veterans in our communities has been a real challenge but i noticed actually one positive thing of the pandemic is that when i went for my first lateral flow test or whatever it was what they call them in in the car park of my local tescos there was the third battalion the royal anglian regiment reservists there manning that test center and yeah and i didn't declare the fact that i'm a military person but what i got in return immediately even through the signs of the windscreen was their body language their positivity a bit of cheeky banter as well and all of a sudden people's relationship not only in the character of our armed forces people but their ability to adapt set up a test center like that run it effectively professionally has been there in our communities once more and that's something i think that um is a real talent and actually shows that we can do things such as startups and yeah. and it's actually something i've seen you've been really good at which is startups i mean you that you started up a role specifically at Help for heroes in the recovery services you then pretty much started up the office of veterans affairs is is being involved in a startup something that you've been naturally good at or it's something that you've learned to be good at or is it just something as part of that military dna would you
0: say I think it's probably go the, the, more the latter. I think, and then you then you sort of find yourself if you've done one, somebody might ask you to do another. Um, but I do think part of that part of that um, process is is understanding where you want to get to, in in, in easily definable chunks. Working out a plan to get there, which isn't too detailed, and and, and that suits me because I'm not a terribly detailed sort of person. But but when I say not too detailed, that's because it's going to change. So don't be surprised when it does. Um, and therefore, have a plan that has some flexibility in it and, so, and some scope for you to, to veer and haul within it um, and, be able to, and be able to sell it to your people and bring them with you. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of being comfortable with risk uh, and, and understanding where the, where the risks are. And there'll be plenty when you're starting up. In fact, you're probably trying to work out at the start which ones do you list and which ones do you probably just not bother listing because the, it doesn't matter whether you list them or not. Um, and, uh, and I think be comfortable with the risk, be adaptable, keep, keep, keep flexible, keep, keep mentally keep on your feet um, and bring on board people who have bought into it, who understand and, and appreciate, with who will also challenge you but will in, in the course of that challenge, they'll help you get to where you want to get to go, where the organisation needs to be. And I think the military is really good at that. You know, the, the the caricature picture of the military is the guy at the top writes some orders out in his book, then shouts them out at people, who all jump up and down and go and do it. You and I both know that's not actually what happens at all, generally, um, unless time is incredibly short. There's a much more there's a much more cooperative, collaborative approach to, to planning anything. And that sort of, that's a collaborative approach, helped me enormously at Health for Heroes, helped me uh, to degree as well at the OVA. And, and I think having, uh, I did a couple of things with um, startups when I was working for myself in between those two. Um, and now as I'm in mean, my own sort of, uh, my, my own um, sort of singleton role as the advisor, I'm not shy about asking people what they think I should be doing and how they think I should be doing it. And whether I agree with them or not is another thing, but it's worth hearing. And I think that that's being open to all that kind of stuff is really important. And I'm absolutely certain that the military and the military background, the training we receive and the experiences we go through set us up pretty well for that. Do you think you're just sort of naturally drawn to those environments? And
1: perhaps if we were to ask you that question as that young boy of why do you want to join the army? It might reflect on what you've just described, really, in terms of the why, rather than can't seem doing anything else.
0: Yeah, possibly, possibly. Um and I, I and I think having it also helps being clear about exactly what you say, why are we doing this? What's this for? What are we trying to achieve? Once you've got that sort of sorted out in your mind, not to not to the most finite degree of detail, but as long as you you're pretty sure the sentiments about, right? Well, start going towards it and 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 start bringing people with you on it. Um and and I think there's a bit for me around um startups need a really subtle blend i think of leadership and management and um leadership and management aren't always easy bedfellows because what the what the leadership demands the management might sort of begin to feel slightly queasy about um but, and that's and i think that's where the judgment calls start start to be made but um there's there's no shortage of 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 development for your leadership in your military career and I think that sets you up pretty well and one of the features you hear so often about military people is they're not they're not they sorry they're, they are comfortable making decisions and one of the and often a culture shock you hear people coming out of the military um articulate is when is somebody going to make a decision around here why do we just keep talking about stuff you and I will have heard that. Lots of, lots of people have heard it. Yeah, we seem to be, we've listed all the risks, then we're going through the risks again, and more and more risks. Well, the risks aren't going to go away. Sooner or later, you have to make a decision. Now make a decision and then invest in it. And, and I, you know, I remember actually when I was doing some consultancy work a few years ago being asked by a big, it was actually a big insurance company at a at, at, at Q&A session, yeah, how is it that um, in the military you can sort of turn operationally in the field um, you know, plans into action so quickly? And my simple answer was, because when we write the plan, we've got every intention of going to do it. We're not writing the plan in order to pin it on the wall or to put it in a folder or to turn it into lots of boxes that are coloured red, amber and green that somebody fills in every week. We have every intention that tomorrow morning or next week we're going to go and do that. So you better get your thumb out um, at your rear end and start and, and engage with it. Um, uh, and we'd pay an interest in not just our bit, but, every, but bits which other bits, the left and right, up and down of ours. And that's why, actually, you know, I look back, why could Andy Thompson, my battery commander, step up as CO like that? Because as we went through the planning cycle for the operation that I was uh, wounded on, he wasn't just involved in the fire plan, he was involved in everything. So he knew what was going on when the boss was suddenly not there. And that's a feature, I think, of yeah, why why we sort of reasonably good at at sort of startups and and getting organizations moving forward and getting stuff done because somebody's leading it and there's a culture of understanding what's happening to your left to your right to your front and to your back so that when things start to fall over you can step into the gap
1: yeah and that that culture you describe is pretty asymmetric or or flat and which doesn't necessarily compute with some people's understanding of the military that hierarchical structure that people can relate to more naturally but actually in practice as you describe when it does go wrong we just crack on and I love the how you describe that we basically plan for it to happen plan for success and this is why I think military folk are brilliant in politics because we just need some decision making we need leadership we need management and actually when you become an MP and you set up your office it is a start-up because you have to do everything yourself mm. um with pretty little support you hiring staff um finding out where your, your base is going to be in the constituency setting up your office in parliament so all of those skills that you describe are just completely transferable but when you talk about politics with some veterans they get a bit queasy about that and i think the, the more that we can i'm going to nick your word evangelize around it the veterans you ...within politics, as I do in this politi- in this podcast, which is why I do this, um, then the more natural and more familiar the veterans will become. But one area that people are a bit more comfortable, a role such as yourself, because actually what you do, it is in yeah. politics. Hence why it's great to have you on the show anyway, but also in terms of your role. Why do you think people are more comfortable around roles such as yourself being a veteran in politics... Than necessarily seeing an elected person in politics. Why do you think people are a little bit less queasy when seeing public figures that are veterans?
0: Um, I I think uh, um, I'm not sure. But I, mean, I, I think you know I I personally wouldn't see myself as a politician. It's not it's not something that's a, that that particularly I'm attracted to, and all that kind of stuff. But I do think, as you sort of described it that there's absolutely a role for people who are um who are um, reg- well regarded in their in their in their sector to have a role influencing what politicians may or may not think and the decisions they might or might not make i mean ultimately for me i'm an i'm an advisor i give advice i i, I don't make the decision the decision's over to them sometimes it's I think it's the right one. Sometimes I don't, but ultimately, you know, they're elected by other people, and you know, they they stand or fall by that in due course. Um, I think that um, the military military people of all ranks, and I'm, I, you know, and I think the tendency of some people is to assume that when you talk about politicians, it must be officers. I don't think that should be the case at all. Um, uh, I think potentially could be really good politicians, um, be, be that on a national stage or in a lo- local authority. Um, environment or or parishes or all the various other different tiers of authority that um, that that exist up and down the country. Um, Why why do I think they could be really good? I think they could be really good because um, I think they have a should they they, they bring a strong sense of what is right and wrong. I I think um, often our politicians I think to my mind rightly get a hard time because they, they will make a decision which evidently is not the right one. Because it's just the wrong—they're doing the wrong thing, Um, no doubt for a whole host of reasons. But often it's quite difficult to (laughs) divine those reasons from what you hear and say. Um, That I think there's a pretty strong moral compass in in military people, Um, and I think that um, over a career in the military, you 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 understand um, that people don't expect you to know everything but they do expect you to ask people who might know the answer or might be able to give you advice and give you the time to have a think about it and make your own decision. And I think you're know, those sort of... Are those features exclusive to the military? Of course they're not. There are other parts of, of of life that that also would equip you with those things. But I think you get those in spades in a sort of military environment. Um, and therefore, I think that... Um, it can do no harm for... And also, there's actually, the, the, I've missed the obvious one, haven't I, in my mind. The obvious one is service. You know, military service is called service for a reason. You're not doing it for yourself. Uh, and, and, of course, you can continue to serve in your communities, um, locally or regionally or nationally, in politics or in a number of other different ways. Um, those of unelected positions like the, the advisory one I've got, and, and there are others, as you know. Um, and I think that that the, there's a sort of very strong bent towards service in the military community, the armed forces community. And I think also in that group, when I say the armed forces community, I count in that deliberately families, you know, spouses and partners who've, who've – um, uh, who followed your military career um, also have a huge amount to offer because they are the ones who have who have fought with the schools and argued with the doctors, surgery, and try find a dentist and all those sort of things and done it every two or three years. And God, that brings you a lot of experience, life experience that you can bring to to politics. Um, and I think it's also important in in the House of Commons that you have and Lords actually that you have a body of people in there. You understand what military service actually means. So when we get down to those really important debates about whatever the next military operation might be, they're not abstract anymore. There are people who know what it is and understand what it's about and the seriousness of the decisions being made. And they understand it firsthand. That doesn't mean to say they needed to be the commander of land forces or commander of the air component. But they understand what being asked to go and stick a bayonet in the Queen's enemies actually means. And the and the and the impact that that can have, and some of the consequences that that will have on people and families, um, and I think that is really important. And I, I you know I, I look back, blimey, let's go back to to whenever we properly got our our um, arm caught in the mangle in in Iraq. Um, I think that, and particularly Helmand, as Helmand kicked off, that sadly the p- political. Um, arena, but most importantly, the British public at large, had largely forgotten that combat operations have consequences for people. There will be pieces to pick up, there'll be broken people coming back, there'll be people who don't come back. And I could sense, you know, in 2006, especially, and as we got into ARSA deployment 2008, I think people have forgotten that, and it was a bit of a shock. It's not a shock. And I suspect now, memories being short, it'll be a bit of a shock again. But we need people who are in elected positions to make sure that certainly those who are charged with the debate and the discussion and the decisions haven't forgotten or don't forget. Uh, and that that um, the decisions are made, right, right, rightly or wrongly, decisions are made fully conscious of what the implications might be for people, quite apart from the grand strategy of the whole thing.
1: I think on um, what I'm hearing from you, David, is stand up and serve again, which is our byline.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You, you've 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 spent a long time serving already. You're obviously got a bent for it. Um, you know, step forward again. Keep doing it. You know, none of us do it for the, none of us do it for the money or the or any of that kind of stuff. Do it do it because it's the right thing to do. And and I think you know there's a there's a duty that comes. I think. I mean, I, I've always felt if you're called upon to serve. You serve. Yeah. When I was asked about OVA, um, it was a bit bit of a wrench because something else I was doing was doing quite well. I thought, actually, you don't get asked if you call the one to do this, go and do it. Similarly, when I was asked about this, yes, you go and do it. You, you don't because because somebody wants you to serve. And I see this, the role I'm in is service. I'm not here f- for myself. I'm here to um, to bat for the veterans community um, and to and to ensure that that our political politicians and people in positions of authority get the best advice i can give them and help them make the right decisions
1: david richmond on those amazing words we'll close it there thank you thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you